It's no accident that the car ramming took place. It's domestic terror. Very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group. Excuse me. Excuse me. I saw the same pictures as you did. I've never seen so much hatred in the eyes of my fellow human beings in my life. We have overcome a lot in our democracy. We've overcome McCarthyism. We've overcome segregation. And we're going to overcome this. And I think we are having a huge debate right now around what's the difference between free speech and hate speech. Welcome back to Overcoming Extremism. I'm Mike Signer. I was the mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia during the Unite the Right rally in August 2017. Overcoming Extremism is a journey into the heart of American democracy as we explore together how democracy can overcome extremism in a challenging new era. We are sitting down with folks who have dealt with extremism firsthand. Mayors, prosecutors, faith leaders, activists, journalists. Together, their stories provide important clues to how democracy can and must rise to this challenge. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. We've just heard from Mary McCord of Georgetown University about her successful strategy of suing militia groups under a 200-year-old law that basically makes them illegal if they're operating without permission. Our next guest is doing something similar, but it's different as well. Amy Spitalnik is the executive director of Integrity First for America. Along with her colleagues, the noted lawyers Roberta Kaplan and Karen Dunn, she has been spearheading another lawsuit against some of the same militia groups who invaded Charlottesville, but this time it's for monetary damages on behalf of plaintiffs who were badly injured. And it's on an entirely different legal theory and an entirely different set of laws, laws that were passed to deal with the Ku Klux Klan's reign of terror. It's a fascinating and an important attempt to use the rule of law to stop extremism in its tracks. Let's get started. Amy, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. So let's get started just with the organization that you represent, Integrity First for America. Who are they? What's the mission of this group? Integrity First for America is a civil rights nonprofit. Um, and our mission is to take on those who threaten the principles of our democracy, including our commitments to civil rights and equal justice in this country. As IFA was coming into being, Charlottesville happened. And uh, it was very clear that what happened in Charlottesville directly intersected with the values and the mission of IFA and that those who were responsible for what happened needed to be held accountable. And so IFA, in collaboration with our legal team, which includes Roberta Kaplan, Karen Dunn, and a number of other brilliant lawyers, partnered with our plaintiffs in this case 
and move this lawsuit forward. And the Charlottesville case is our only case right now. It is everything that IFA raises, everything that's donated to IFA supports the Charlottesville case just because of the size and the scope of it and the importance of it. Well, let's get right to that. What is that case? What's the litigation? So 10 Charlottesville community members who were injured in the violence have brought a lawsuit against two dozen neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and hate groups who were responsible. Many people, when they think of Charlottesville, assume that the violence was spontaneous, that it just sort of happened in the midst of this Unite the Right rally. But the facts and the evidence make clear that it was actually planned long in advance, that the leaders of this white nationalist movement for months in advance on a chat platform called Discord, which is typically used by video gamers, talked about everything from what to wear, what to bring for lunch, which weapons to carry, whether they would crack skulls, and whether they could claim self-defense if they drove cars into protesters, which is, of course, exactly what happened. This lawsuit seeks to hold accountable the two dozen individuals and groups who organized, planned, and executed that violence. It argues that there was a conspiracy to commit racially motivated violence. It uses a statute that was first passed nearly 150 years ago during the Reconstructionist era, Mm. called the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, meant to protect recently freed slaves when it was first passed, um, but has been used a number of times since to protect against these exact types of racially motivated conspiracies. And the damages are so horrible. Last week, I met with two of the survivors from the 4th Street attack, one of whom is is one of the plaintiffs, and they are both unable to work two years later and suffering from severe post-traumatic stress disorder, really, really struggling at at just a very human level with with how to make their way in the world, you know, having had a car run through the crowd that they were a part of. It's awful. They do need this kind of justice. Exactly. And I think the plaintiffs in our suit are so brave because instead of just curling up into a ball and saying this awful thing happened to me and I'm not going to I don't want I don't want to deal with this anymore. They took this awful thing that happened to them mm-hmm. and are using it to actually fight for justice not just for themselves but for the broader community and against this broader mo- hate movement. And their case will have ripple effects that go well beyond Charlottesville. We're exploring how the institutions of democracy can best deal with extremism. One of those institutions is the legal system, specifically in this case, civil lawsuits seeking money damages. I wanted to understand from Amy just what goes into such a lawsuit, especially when there are 10 plaintiffs and two dozen defendants. How does it work? Here's what she said. So litigation like this in normal circumstances would still be quite resource intensive and time consuming. But litigation like this against two dozen neo-Nazis, white supremacists and hate groups has that plus a whole other level of craziness that comes on top of it. Hmm. So to backtrack a bit, when the violence happened in Charlottesville, every American looked on with disgust, with fear, with concern. And that included 
many of the folks now on our legal team. Roberta Kaplan, who is the lawyer who represented Edie Windsor in the landmark marriage equality case at the Supreme Court, had watched what happened, had talked to some of her colleagues, had talked to friends who were in Charlottesville. And it was very clear that something needed to be done. There would certainly be individual cases against James Fields and, as we saw, against a handful of others for their various roles in the violence. But what we learned in the days after Unite the Right was that through these discord chats, this conspiracy had been planned by a larger coalition of leaders and groups And that everything that happened was intended to happen, that it was specifically this violent conspiracy. So our legal team immediately went down to Charlottesville in the weeks after, um, met with potential plaintiffs who had been injured in the violence. It was very clear that these people's rights were violated, that it was intentional and meticulous and long planned. By October of 2017, this case was filed. Of course, the defendants haven't been too thrilled that they're being sued. They filed a motion to dismiss trying to block the case, trying to argue that their First Amendment rights, their Second Amendment rights, and many other rights are being violated by it. And in a really clear and important decision, the court ruled last summer in 2018 that the First Amendment does not protect against conspiracies to commit violence, that the Second Amendment doesn't protect against what they did in Charlottesville, and that the case can move forward basically in full. We expect trial next year in mid to late 2020. And that moment when we put the leaders of this white nationalist movement on Mm. the stand during a three to four week jury trial in Charlottesville, a block away from Heather Higher Way, and hold them accountable for what they did in 2017 and show the country just how deep and meticulous this conspiracy was. That will be a moment that will be incredibly powerful and really force a public conversation on this crisis of violent extremism that I think we so desperately need. It turns out the planning for the violence of the Unite the Right rally was happening in a closed forum on Discord, which is a gaming platform. I wanted to ask Amy some questions about this. First, how did they get the conversations from a private password-protected chat room on Discord? Uh, Second, what can we do about this problem of people planning violence using these sorts of social media platforms? So to start with the easiest question first, which is how we got a hold of the chats. First, in the aftermath of Unite the Right, a white hat hacking collective known as Unicorn Riot, and Mm -hmm. we don't know much about them, but they released these chats in the weeks after Unite the Right. And so very early on after the violence, these chats came out and it was clear this level of detail that went into the planning. In the course of litigation, we were able to subpoena those chats, Hmm. as well as a ton of other evidence that the defendants have not been particularly forthcoming with. But we've won court orders requiring them to turn over their phones, computers, social media, email accounts. Um, And we're in the midst of making sure they do so. Some have. In other cases, we've had to ask the court to sanction the defendants to make sure that they actually hand these pieces of evidence over. And actually, just a few weeks ago in August, we won our first real monetary sanctions against the defendants, which uh, against three defendants specifically, which is an important step forward. How do we actually grapple with the fact that 
conspiracies like these are happening behind closed doors, quote unquote. And what that really speaks to is something that I know you and many others have been thinking about, which is what is the role of tech companies in this crisis? I think it's very clear that the current system is not working, that in many places, sites like Discord, 4chan, 8chan, Gab, Telegram right now especially are becoming hotbeds for extremism and not just for terms of service, but also actual violent conspiracies that go well beyond simple hate speech. Right. I don't think the solution is one that is going to come easy and going to be a one-party solution. It's going to require a comprehensive effort on the policy front, on the law enforcement front, and specifically on the tech company front. We knew going into Charlottesville, certainly the community of Charlottesville was aware that this was happening behind closed doors, but there was not a lot of access to actually figure out what violence was being planned until it was too late. Amy, I was just sickened to read some of the discussion that is in the litigation that's in the federal judge's decision about car attacks, especially mm-hmm. after the car attack that they killed Heather Heyer, who was an activist on the on the site. You know, like one of the quotes was, nothing makes us more proud at the KKK than we see white patriots such as James Fields Jr., age 20, taking his car, running over nine communist anti-fascists, killing one. There's another one, you know, Jason Kessler defendant tweeted, communists have killed 94 million. Looks like it was payback time. This is all after this happened. It's just it's just horrifying to read. And it must be an example for you of what you're up against, what you're dealing with and why you're doing this. Yeah. So this brings me to an important point, I guess, which is when Unite the Right happened, it was clear that the intention was violence, and that is what happened. But they then celebrated that violence afterwards, right. exactly as you just described. And ever since, they have been continuing to promote and incite violence, not just as it relates to what happened in Charlottesville, but actually against our plaintiffs and our legal team. And the amount of violent threats that our team is getting on a near-daily basis from our defendants or their followers and supporters is stunning. It's why IFA has to be raising money for security costs, frankly. Mm. And it speaks to the fact that what happened in Charlottesville two years ago was intended to really be this flashpoint in this rise of white nationalist violence. We know the ways that they move to push their followers to action. A couple of months ago, Chris Cantwell, one of our defendants, was talking on Telegram about how he was going to, quote, have a lot of fun with Robbie Kaplan, our lead lawyer. Hmm. And that's concerning not just because of Cantwell's own capacity for violence. And we've saw we've seen that firsthand in Charlottesville and with his long criminal history. But it's also concerning because what Cantwell and these other leaders do is try to move their followers to action. And so the next disaffected white nationalist is looking on and seeing these comments as a call to action. And that's what we've seen in so many of these other white nationalist attacks over the last few years. So if you listen to the discussion with Mary McCord about the anti-militia lawsuit, you are familiar with another legal tactic used against these extremist militias who invaded Charlottesville. And you might be wondering, what's the difference between these two lawsuits? Here's how Amy explained it. What our case seeks to do is it seeks large monetary judgments against the defendants. Mm -hmm. And that is important 
because they should be held accountable for what they did. James Fields was sentenced to life in prison a few months ago, and that is important. But there are two dozen other people who planned and executed this violence, and they have not been brought to justice yet. And so this suit is the only one at this stage moving forward that seeks to do that. By bankrupting and dismantling infrastructure that's at the center of this movement, and the defendants in our suit really are at the center of this much larger white nationalist movement, it can have ripple effects well beyond that specific case. Hmm. So, for example, the Pittsburgh shooter talked on Gab with some of the Charlottesville leaders in the weeks leading up to killing 11 people at Tree of Life last fall. The Christchurch shooter painted onto his gun a symbol known as the fast tag, which was first promoted and popularized by Matthew Heimbach, another one of our defendants. And the cycle goes on and on. We all know how the Christchurch shooter then inspired Poway in El Paso. And so these individuals and groups that we're taking on through this lawsuit are, of course, responsible for Charlottesville, but their role in this broader movement, this broader extremist movement, is also very clear. And by bankrupting and dismantling them through these large judgments, we have the possibility of really putting a significant dent in the movement and sending a clear message to any other individuals or groups who might try to do the same thing that if you do this, we will take you on, we will take you to court, and we will bankrupt you. And so this mechanism of civil damages, of of bankrupting an entity behind conspiracies to riot and to crush people's uh, civil liberties and hate crimes, these were set up in the original statutes. This was set up in the 1870s to attack the KKK. Yeah, the KKK Act is really one of the few mechanisms that exist to protect against private conduct that violates people's civil rights. So much of our civil rights law is targeted at government conduct. The government needs to make sure that people are treated with equality and justice. But there are not a ton of mechanisms in place for private plaintiffs to fight back when their civil rights are violated by other private citizens. So the KKK Act is one of those few statutes. It's specifically meant to take on and award monetary judgments in cases like this when individuals conspire to undermine people's civil rights. In the aftermath of the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments had been ratified, but the Ku Klux Klan was doing everything in its power to make sure that recently freed slaves couldn't actually access those rights, and it was a reign of terror. And so the Reconstructionist Congress passed a series of laws that were meant to give both government and, in this case, private citizens the ability to fight back. And that's exactly how the KKK Act came about. It was meant to protect against those sorts of violent, racially motivated conspiracies. The same thing is happening. It might be happening online, and these individuals and groups might be so emboldened right now that they're willing to put their real names and faces on it. But it doesn't change the basics of the fact that they are doing very much the same thing that the Klan was doing in the 1870s. In a time when some activists advocate openly for vigilantism against extremists, like those who say that we should punch Nazis, my question for Amy was about the importance of using lawful mechanisms, like the Integrity First for America lawsuit, instead to counter violent extremism. 
I, I do think that we have important tools at our disposal already, and that's exactly what our plaintiffs are doing in this suit. They're using the existing tools to take on the leaders of this movement, to hold them accountable for what they did and to bring them to court and bring them to justice. But there's a lot more that needs to happen. I think we all know the ways in which our federal government has, instead of investing in countering extremism, has disinvested in recent years. Right. Department of Justice civil rights investigations are down 60% over the last few years. The Department of Homeland Security cut a domestic terror intelligence unit. And then, you know, of course, doesn't talk about the additional steps that we should be taking that things like making sure there's effective communication and collaboration between federal agencies and between the federal, state, and local levels. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Dick Durbin bill, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, has languished in Congress this year. And it is sort of a bare minimum that could happen right now to start to address some of these gaps in our policies. So one question that would come up is, what's the argument on the other side? So if the shoe were on the other foot, if it was a, you know, say a progressive group that was that was very impassioned, that thought that the forces they were challenging needed to be confronted they needed self-defense. Are there any concerns or how do you address concerns that the arguments you're advancing here would infringe on the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and the, the you know the other rights of, of groups if the shoe were on the other foot? Well, this is also the question that was really central to the judge's decision last summer, which was what are the First Amendment, what are the Second Amendment implications of this suit, and does this suit potentially tread on any of those? And the court issued a very clear decision saying it does not, that the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and the other arguments that defendants floated are not undermined by this case. In fact, those things do not protect against what happened. And I would say that if any entity did what the defendants in our suit did, if any entity went online, planned to bring violence to a community, talked about the weapons they would carry and use, talked about cracking skulls, talked about hitting protesters with cars, and then went and did those things, they should be held accountable no matter their politics. But at this moment, the people who are doing those things, the groups and individuals who are planning violence and then bringing it to our communities, using it to inspire others to shoot up synagogues and Walmarts and churches, those people are of one particular ideology, which is a right-wing white nationalist ideology. So that is where the crisis is right now. Mm -hmm. If anyone of any political stripe did the same thing our defendants did, they too should absolutely be held accountable. Amy, tell us about yourself. You have a a personal journey that's brought you to this work of battling neo-Nazis in the United States of America. I'm the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. And it is baffling to me that in 2019, We need to be taking on neo-Nazis in court to help stop this tide of rising anti-Semitic, racist, white supremacist violence that is Mm. gripping our country right now. So for me, you know, growing up, the Holocaust violent hate was a thing that was largely a history lesson, a personal one. My grandmother was who I brought to elementary school to share her story. She hid underneath uh, her family's porch as the Nazis murdered a few of her sisters. And growing up as a Jewish American, you learn about the Holocaust. You think about this, sort of what would I have done had I been in this moment in history? How would I have fought back? 
I don't want to say that that is where we are as a country, but I think if there is ever the question of what would you do at a critical moment in our history when our rights and our values are being threatened, we are at that moment right now. And so for me, when Robbie Kaplan called me up and said, hey, do you want to help me sue Nazis? Hmm. It seemed like, what else could I do right now? This is the most tangible thing that I personally can be doing in this moment. The law is an essential element of democracy. But the fact is, lawsuits can take a really long time. Given Amy's personal commitment to this cause, I wanted to understand how she was dealing with just how long and drawn out all those discovery requests and damages hearings and motions for summary judgments can be. How do you achieve patience in the face of injustice? I would say a few things. I think one, the suit has had immediate tangible impacts on this violent movement. So Richard Spencer, one of our defendants, specifically talked about how he feels like he can't go about business as usual because of the suit. The deterrent effect is really important. There are a number of defendants and their followers who have seen the lawsuit, who have seen the potential financial ramifications of the lawsuit, and have actually tempered some of their rhetoric and actions as a result, it appears. The second piece is it is certainly a slow-moving case. There is no denying that. Um, And it's even slower moving because some of the defendants have gone to extraordinary lengths to try to block evidence. For example, one claimed his phone fell in the toilet. Mm. But I will say that at every turn, every time we've gone to the court seeking sanctions, seeking a court order, making sure that the evidence was being turned over, we have won incredibly important decisions making sure that the defendants fulfill their obligations and that this continues to move forward. So it is slow, but it is moving forward. And the fact that there is expected to be trial next year in mid to late 2020, and particularly in 2020 when we are having a national conversation on so many issues, that trial will be especially powerful. And then the last point I would make is that we can't do this alone. The justice system is not known for its speed. In this case, it means that it's all the more important that some of these other remedies we talked about, the policies, the tech companies, the law enforcement components, these all need to continue to move forward in ways that they haven't been. And the urgency there is all the more important because in cases like ours, it's going to take a little time to see the full impact. Amy Spitalnik, I want to ask you a question we ask all of our guests on this podcast, are you an optimist or a pessimist about our democracy's ability to address and overcome these threats, which are coming from within? By nature of what I do for a living, I have to be an optimist, but an optimist with a number of caveats. So, you know, the idea of bringing a case like this is a fundamentally optimistic one. It says that The people who are harmed in this violence, the people whose rights were undermined, have recourse, and they can use our justice system to get that recourse, that we are going to trial and that these defendants will be held accountable for their actions. And that, in many ways, is a fundamentally optimistic premise Mm -hmm. that you can utilize our justice system. You can utilize the rights that are meant to protect you. Um, I 
do think that there are a number of caveats to that. And I think the most important one is that being optimistic requires being proactive, that if we were just going to sit there and sort of let justice take its course in the aftermath of the violence, there, there would be no reason for optimism because we know that right now the federal government isn't investing where they should on this issue. We know that these organizations and uh, individuals have continued to proliferate on social media. And so it's worth being optimistic, but it takes a level of being proactive for that optimism to be seen through, for us to actually see the results that we want to see here. It takes us being proactive as well. And that's frankly what Integrity First for America's work is about. That's what this case is about. And that is what our plaintiffs are doing in channeling this moment into this fundamentally optimistic idea that our justice system and our, our laws are meant to protect us. Well, Amy, I want to I thank you for taking the time to share with us everything about this, this lawsuit and for, for your work, for your work on protecting our democracy. Thanks so much for having me. Amy Spitalnik is the executive director of Integrity First for America. You've been listening to Overcoming Extremism. Overcoming Extremism's partners include the Anti-Defamation League, the Fetzer Institute, the Charles Koch Institute, the Ford Foundation, Lowell and Eileen Aptman through the Soros Fund Charitable Foundation, the John Pritzker Foundation, Comcast, NBC Universal, Democracy Fund, New America, Georgetown University's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, the Aspen Institute's Justice and Society Program, and Defending Democracy Together. Overcoming Extremism was produced in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our producer is Elliot Majerzyk. The opening theme was created by Poddington Bear, and Elliot composed and produced the musical interludes and the closing music. I'm Mike Signer. Thanks for listening. Thank you.